Elie Wiesel, born in Romania in 1928 and died in New York City in July 2016, is best known as the author of Night, as a survivor of Auschwitz, and as a powerful, enduring voice of the Holocaust. A 1986 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, Wiesel was a human rights champion, a beloved professor, and the author of 57 books. But as Nadine Epstein, editor-in-chief of Moment magazine, which Wiesel co-founded in 1975, reminds us in today's podcast, writing night was a labor of arduous love that took time to think through, to put to paper, and then to chisel and refine. Moriag looks at him and says, you have to tell the story. And he says, I will. And then he goes off and he writes what is, you know, over a thousand pages in Yiddish about what happened to him. Then later on, it becomes a few hundred pages in French. And then it turns into, later on, a hundred-page book in English. When Wiesel co-founded Moment magazine, the idea was to create a place of thick conversation and vibrant but civil disagreement for American Jews. In today's discussion, Nadine joins us for a conversation with Michelle Borstein, a recent Neiman Fellow and since 2006, the religion reporter at The Washington Post. Michelle has three times in the last decade been awarded Religion Reporter of the Year by the Religion News Association for her careful religion coverage in a major news outlet. What makes today's conversation so intriguing is the personal angle. Ellie Wiesel became a mentor and friend to Nadine after she took over the magazine in 2004, and she openly describes Professor Wiesel's strong regard for respectfully clarifying differences, his own human struggles with writing, his early worries at the end of his life with the stunning rise in anti-Semitism in both America and abroad, and Wiesel's lifelong affinity for respectfully listening to the other, no matter his or her station in life. The Point of Departure is a new book about Wiesel that Nadine has just finished editing, which includes 36 short reflections from friends, colleagues, and others who knew him. Among others, the contributions come from Ellie's son, Alicia, from Oprah Winfrey, Wolf Blitzer, Ben Kingsley, Ted Koppel, Natan Sharansky, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, and Ruth Viss. The book's foreword comes from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who also spoke at Faith Angle in 2015. As he says in the book, whatever Ellie did and wherever he went, he carried with him six million fragments of our people. His was the voice of memory when others sought to forget and of defiant hope in the face of despair. Such voices, which like Ellie's, are often undergirded by religious roots, are deeply needed. I hope you enjoy this conversation. that Nadine and others had to put together the book, this concern that um, Elie Wiesel would be forgotten maybe or concerned about that. And I was wondering how he, did he ever talk about that? Did he think about how he would be remembered? I mean, he's so associated with the Holocaust, but he was an advocate in so many other realms and he was a writer and a teacher. Did he talk about how he wanted to be remembered? That's such an interesting question because there's another book out, there's several books out about Ellie right now. And one book is by Ariel Berger, who was one of his students and then was a a TA and worked for him at Boston University. And he told Ariel, and I've been on several panels with Ariel, we've had this conversation, that he wanted to be remembered as a teacher. 
and that being a teacher was the most important thing. But mm. my whole experience with Ellie was very different. We always talked about writing. We never talked about teaching because I'm a writer and he's a writer. And he was a writer. And he always told me he wanted to be remembered well, foremost as a writer. Mm. So it's one of those different conversations with different people. And di- he said different things. And what did he think about, you know, there's there's this long, long conversation about comparing things to the Holocaust and comparing things to concentration camps and comparing things to anti-Semitism. What do you think or what did he think about and produce about that topic? Like, was anti-Semitism to him singular? What would he think about this conversation we're having right now about camps on the border being called concentration camps? I mean, he was an advocate for lots of other things. But he also was an advocate for the Jewish people. Like, how did he balance those things? He was a universalist and a particularist. And he was somebody who cared a lot about the Jewish world. And he he was a writer. He cared a great deal about words. The word Holocaust was a unique word. What happened to the Jews was this incredible, the worst of evil that humans can create. But he also saw and cared about all kinds of suffering. And that's what made him, I think, even more important to what we're seeing today, where he cared about, he cared about what was going on in Rwanda. He cared about Bosnia. In the book, there's a beautiful picture of him in in Bosnia. He cared about Cambodia, and he spoke about these things on a regular basis. He cared a lot about refugees, too, because remember, there were many refugees coming out of the Holocaust and in Israel and the United States and around the world. He wasn't a xenophobic person, Mm. and he would have cared greatly about in my opinion, about refugees, you know, coming in from, from Central America. Nadine, can you say a little bit about his, his habits? I mean, you worked with him somewhat closely. How does one write 57 books? What were his writing habits and what did you see being around him on a regular basis? I wasn't his student and I wasn't in his office in New York. I was somebody who came into his life about maybe around 2005, 2004, 2005, when I took over the magazine. But first I was, by the way, tongue-tied in his presence because I I could only see the character, the boy he was in night. And it was hard for me to see him as a a grown man, as a human being. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to actually be, be able to do that. But he was somebody I went to visit a few times a year, or sometimes I saw him in Florida, sometimes I saw him in New York, and we would talk. But I wasn't, like, working with him and writing books. He did do some things for a moment, because he was the co-founder of Moment, and he had written for Moment early on and in its early phases, and he was, like, really cared about the literary section of the magazine in particular. But when I talked to—when I was in my era with him, he was so particular about what he wrote that he would always say that writing is such work for me— that I have to think about it so carefully. Could you just interview me? So I would always interview him as huh. opposed to... The reason to, for podcasts. <laughs> yes, it was pre-podcast. I did do an interview for, I think, Interfaith Voices of him. So I did a little bit of like radio, public radio interviews of him. But he was... So anyways, he was a really a writer. Like he cared hugely about his, about his writing. He wrote, he told me every day. And he was incredibly prolific. Uh, We also had some funny talks because I'm an editor and I edit myself a lot. Like I rewrite things. And in fact, he really encouraged me to write a book about something else, which I'm, I'm still working on. I kept saying, he kept going, I want to see the book. Give me the stuff. Just send it to me. And I would be like, but I have to edit it more. And he said, don't edit. Just give it to me. 
And he goes, I don't really edit. And I was like, well, you're at this point in your career, you're very blessed. You're really fortunate because most writers edit. I had an appointment to go see him not too long before he died. And I finally had some chapters from this book ready. And I head up to New York. And right before I get there, I get a call that he's not feeling well and I can't come see him. And I never got to show him that I'd actually finished the chapters that we had discussed. And he never got to see them. I learned so much from this book. One of the things that some of the people in it talked about was sort of the debate among people, non-Jews and Jews, about the Holocaust Memorial Museum, which I didn't know that much about, that there were people who felt it was inappropriate, the money, a way to commemorate Jews is spend money on on Jewish people, on Israel, on people who are struggling, or maybe Washington, like, why would you have a memorial in America? Um, do you know more about, like, why did he feel that that was so important? And how did, was it, it seems like Jimmy Carter was an important part of it. Like, the fact that they produced this thing, was it foresight or politics, or what was it? Well, first of all, I think I interviewed Stu Eisenstadt in the book, and one reason I put Stu Eisenstadt in the book was because he was very much a part of bringing Ellie to a uh, public to the, really to becoming a public figure because he was working for Jamie Carter. And he and there was this conversation, which Ellie wasn't necessarily part of, about creating a commission for a Holocaust memorial. It was Stu who thought, well, let's ask Ellie, and who suggested that. And then who called up Ellie and talked to him, and Ellie apparently said, this is what Stu says, is Ellie said no. I'm not the right person. But then he convinced him. So this was something that was coming. Just like any other group of people, Holocaust survivors have very different ideas or had very different ideas about how, what kind of reparations should be done. Were they right about it? Should they not write about it? There were so many differences within the community. Mm -hmm. I think that in some ways, Ellie was a unifier in the community. He certainly became after he wrote Night and then became teacher. So when he's a, a young teacher and he's at, he's teaching at City College in New York, he's a lot of students who are the children of Holocaust survivors. They come to his class, they're drawn to him, and he starts talking to them about writing their stories and helping their parents tell their stories. So one of the things that he's very important in one of his legacies is, is encouraging people to talk and write about the Holocaust. Because when I was a little kid, Nobody mentioned the Holocaust. Well, and he didn't either, right? Ten he years, he right? didn't write about yeah. it for well, a while. Well, yes, so he doesn't want to write about the Holocaust at all. And you can see one of the reasons there's so many photos in the book is because, well, first I was just going to have a photo on the cover, but then I look at them and you see the transition of his expression on his face. He's a very haunted and he's not smiling. <laughs> he doesn't get in front of a camera and, and smile. And you can see as he gets older, he, he learns how to smile. He didn't want to write about it. And then he was in Paris and he meets a Nobel Prize of Literature, Francois Mauriac. And he tells a story to Francois Mauriac about his personal experience in the Holocaust. He hasn't written it down or anything. And Mauriac looks at him and says, you have to tell the story. And he says, I will. And then he goes off and he writes what is, you know, over a thousand pages in Yiddish about what happened to him. Then later on, it becomes a few hundred pages in French. And then it turns into, later on, a hundred-page book in English, which is so sparely and beautifully written. But his story also, he's figuring out how he wants to tell his story. Imagine having all that torment and all that angst, all that pain inside. It's not easy to tell that kind of story, and it's really fresh. 
And so I always was, I've always been sort of skeptical of people who go, well, his, what he wrote in the Yiddish version isn't exactly what the same as he wrote in the right. English version, because in the process of writing, as any writer will know, you have to figure out what it is that you want to say. And imagine trying to figure out what you want to say about something so enormous as the Holocaust. We have a lot of journalists who listen and some other mainstream listeners as well, but for journalists in particular and, and others, what is it about the enterprise of naming things and the editing you're describing, work down, paring it down, saying it clean, that is so healthy or important given your work at moment? I think that there's an obsessive trying to get at the truth, whatever that truth might be. There's so many illusions around us. There's so many illusions that we each have. There's so much confusion in the world. Where do you find wisdom? Where do you find truth? And I think that when you're in a day-to-day journalism world, which I've been, and you know, on a wire service or a newspaper, you don't really have that time to do that. But if you're working on magazine stories or long-term projects, or you're working on books, you know, you want to try it. That's what's, to me, incredibly fulfilling. I think Ellie was, he was, if you read his work, First of all, he's not just writing. He starts out in nonfiction, and he occasionally goes back into nonfiction, but he really gets into fiction. And he's often telling really nonfictional stories in fiction. I mean, he's talking about his life, but he's changing it up a bit. His characters don't always go that far from him, mm-hmm. from at least the books that I've read. So anyways, I think he's struggling with to do that. In, he's not struggling at later on in his he career. He could be struggling. He's he a was human struggling being. in the beginning. <laughs> he was a journalist for the first part of his career. He, after the Holocaust, he decides, you know, I'm not going to be Hazan. I'm not going to be a rabbi. I'm not going to be following a sort of religious path. I'm not going to be living in a small town and teaching in a yeshiva. What am I going to do in the world? And he decides, I'm going to be a journalist for a whole bunch of reasons. One is he loved writing. He always had loved writing, although he was writing things like Talmudic interpretations. He wasn't writing, like, you know, anything about the real world. And he never even read things outside the Jewish world. One of the first things he told me when I met him was that he had named Der Moment. Der Moment was a Yiddish newspaper, a daily paper in Warsaw. And it was from 1910 to 1939. And all a, a lot of the yiddish Jews were all over Eastern Europe read it. And also in Saget, Romania, where he lived, his father got the paper. And his father had the paper on the kitchen table all the time. And Ellie would see the paper, but he never read the paper. Because as a yeshiva boy, you didn't read papers. You didn't, it was just forbidden. You just secular didn't do that. Things. It was a secular right. thing. So after he knows he's not going to be following this traditional path of his parents, of his father or his yeshiva teachers, he decides, well, what can I do? And he tells me, I thought of Der Moment. I thought, well, you know, I could be a journalist. I like to write. And that starts him off on this whole journalism career. He starts writing for a little paper, like a Zionist paper in, in Paris. And then he starts writing for, and excuse my French, La Arche, which is like a, some newspaper in, in France. That sends him to Israel, where he's assigned to write a story. It's like he becomes like a foreign correspondent. He's still like it teenager. And he goes to Israel and he's assigned to write a story about the Olim, about all the new migrants coming into Israel. And he spends several months there looking into this. And by the way, he 
from talking to some of the people in the book, and I never talked to him about this personally, but I talked to several other people who he had had this conversation with. He did not like what he saw. He was really concerned about how Holocaust survivors were being treated at these camps. Hmm. Not that they were being mistreated, but that they weren't being treated with the kind of respect and understanding. And again, that was the time because, you know, Holocaust survivors were looked at, oh my God, who are these people? We're trying to build the world. We're trying to move on. And they're these people and they show up and they're, what do you do with them? I mean, it was, I don't, I think the world needed several decades to be able to understand how to, to grapple with them. What did they need? Who were they? What had happened? We didn't even know what had really happened. To prepare for this, I talked to his assistant who you interviewed, and she told me that he only taught a class about the Holocaust one time. And so I was wondering just when you said, obviously it's common for Holocaust survivors to have not written or spoken for some time about it, but just like if he had some ambivalent, he was in this line between being like the face of the Holocaust for so many people, and then he didn't want to speak for it, or do you know why he only taught one? So, and I think Ariel Berger talked a little bit about this when we were on a panel recently together, that he felt it was so depressing Mm. to have this overwhelming, it was just so overwhelming and depressing for his students, and that he could teach wisdom that he wanted to teach through in the lessons that he wanted to teach through literature. He viewed himself as a writer and a teacher and a, and somebody who was into literature. So it wasn't like he didn't want to talk about the Holocaust. He felt it was too depressing and too overwhelming for his students to directly get that information. Yeah. That's what I understood. Uh. And he, you can see he doesn't spend his life just writing about the Holocaust. He's writing about all sorts of things. I mean, he he starts out as this young, tortured journalist, and he was really a struggling writer for a long time, too. You know, like, Knight didn't sell a lot of copies. It got critical acclaim, but it took him a while, a you know, time. before he, right. he was, there were people who lent him money and helped him. You know, he was not financially stable for a while. He's talking about the Holocaust, but he's talking about the world also, which make, goes back to he's a particularist, but he's also this universalist. Right. And watching the UN commemoration six months or so after his death, I noted that they described he was tortured twice, the first time obviously by the enemy, the second time by the world's silence or indifference. And they made a lot of the idea that his work, his life work, was was holding up the spotlight in other places for other communities of people who were either being experimented on or persecuted in one way or another. This is a hard question, but what do you think he would be noticing today? First of all, he has many legacies. And one of the legacies, by the way, in the book that's Natan Sharansky, when we talked to Natan Sharansky, he's talking about how he thinks what Ellie's most important thing that Ellie thought he did was going to ha- writing about the Jews of the Soviet Union in the 1960s, which then helped get American Jews very unified, which is rare, <laughs> to go and help bring Jews out of the Soviet Union. So he felt that that was like an incredibly important part of his legacy. Basically, it was more like people suffering. He didn't want people to suffer wherever they were in any kind. So I think that was a very important part of his message. But I think there are many things that we can take from him now. I just was writing about this the other day, that he also had a way of talking. He wasn't an ideologue. And I think this is really important. He talked to people on the left, on the right, 
people in the middle, people. I mean, he he, he wasn't really all these different presidents across the board. And yeah, so he was right. friends with Yitzhak Rabin. You know, had conversations with Reagan. He really liked Obama. I mean, there were just so many. One of those people who transcended polarization, and I think that's incredibly important. First of all, how did he do that? He was very gracious. He had opinions, but he also knew how to listen to other people. He was a he journalist. Was, he was a journalist. <laughs> he was a journalist. That's he, our aspiration to be like that. He was accessible for people to talk to in this way because of his experience in the Holocaust and because he had seen evil in its kind of rawest form and ugliest form. He had this moral gravitas that people actually listened to him as well. So those were two really important things. People listened to him and he listened to people. And he was gracious and he was civil. And so this was something he told me about the magazine sometimes. He would go, you know, I really love the tumult of all the different ideas and disagreements in the magazine. But what I especially like is that they are very tasteful and they are civil. And that was a really important point. And I think we can learn from him right now that we need to, particularly in this area of time of era and this time of deep polarization in our society, that we need to be civil and have this graciousness. And I feel like that's an incredible part of his message. I would be curious to know, because I know he wasn't well towards the end of his life, like if he would have, what he would have said about the things that are so familiar to us now, like the polarization and our desire to overcome that, I don't know if that's the right verb, and the reality of trying to make an impact and the way in which there's so much people are being bombarded with and the way in which like the sharp point gets the gets the attention. And even if you don't like that, sometimes you have to engage with it. And like, and I was thinking about the frame of the, the book introduction about hoping to keep his memory alive. And I was thinking like, okay, if you're trying to keep this, not not just the memory, but like a hundred years from now, how does someone like him or the Holocaust get in a sense repurposed through the generations? Like when you live long enough, you see the way things get remade, like a new generation is like, oh, I'm interested for this reason or that reason, or popular culture like consumes something. And like, if there's some, if pe- if there's people out there thinking like, okay, how do we keep these things alive realistically? We want to not be polarizing, but we have to like, engage with the culture as it is. I don't know. That's Mm -hmm. putting a lot out there. But I was just thinking, like, I'm sure there's somebody who's thinking, like, we want to keep this guy alive and his ideas and his way. How? How do we do that? That's what I was thinking about doing the book. I think that's something I know his son is thinking about. I mean, I know that. But on the other hand, he gave us something that will hopefully stay. And that's the book night, for starters, which is read and should be read in high schools all around and colleges all around the country and the world. And not just him, there are other incredible, powerful stories about the Holocaust. And those stories and those books are really important and they need to be taught. This generation of the Holocaust survivors is dying off. And they did it in the beginning. First, it was just a few people like Ellie and Primo Levi, but now there's a whole genre of Holocaust survivor literature. And I think it's really important for us to have that and to be teaching it. That's one part of it. I think the other thing that I was very impressed, and this was something that I really, I didn't maybe uh, value enough when I was always talking to him. Like we were friends and I have certain things we talked about. And then, you know, afterwards, I now feel like I've expanded my universe and I know so much more about him because I've talked mm-hmm. to so many other people about him. And if you did that with any person, it would be fascinating. But with Ali, it's particularly fascinating. But he was incredibly curious and he 
always asked questions. He was learning all the time. And I think that's something that all of us, again, that learning is real learning is an antidote to polarization because so much of the polarization is based on just lazy thinking. And, oh, well, this is what I know the answer. And the fact is that we don't always know the answers and that we always have to ask the questions. And sometimes we learn something new and it's amazing. And this is something that goes way back before Ellie. There is the phrase in Per Kea Vote, which is, I'm not a particularly observant person in any way, shape or form, but this, she who is wise can learn from everyone. And I believe that he, he actually, I mean, this is something that means a lot to me. And I think it means a lot to him. He had all sorts of conversations with people, often private. But he was really asking questions and he was really learning. And he didn't always have to say, I know more than you do and tell everybody what he knew. But that's something important for us all to do. And we need to teach that. We have to remember that ourselves and teach that to upcoming generations as well. I had a whole season of living with Quakers when I was in graduate school. Uh, it was great. 18 people in this little shared house. Oh, wow. What could go wrong? It was great. <laughs> but they had this idea of uh, the image of God being present in each person, and you're supposed to pay attention to that no matter who, no matter who. I thought that was very interesting. I wonder if you think there's something about the religious anchor there uh, in his life, you know, is it a sp- is specifically a, a, a something about his Judaism, his Orthodox Judaism that um, set him free to be open like that? Um, I just listened to Daniel Krauthammer's podcast he just did uh, talking about his father, and he talked about how his dad's sense of history and his dad's sense of Judaism was what sort of made him a little differently free when it came to the talk shows and not having to be all... I wonder about if there's a religious angle. I think that there's sort of a traditional Jewish learning. I mean, he was a yeshiva boy, and you are immersed in the world of Talmud, for example, and the Talmud is a conversation that occurs over generations uh, between rabbis who are kind of discussing questions, and there's no one answer. And I think that's always an incredibly important thing to for everyone to know we can you know and it's 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 it really informs our culture and our society but i think we don't really think about it so in terms of it it does have a a basis in in judaism and a talmudic thought so of course his anchor in judaism gave him obviously a grasp of the conflicts within the torah and the stories and the talmud and that provides a perspective when you go out into the world It's not the only way to get that kind of perspective. I think there are many other ways to get that kind of perspective. On top of that, he then goes to Paris. He says he's the Sorbonne. He becomes very well-read in other areas as well once he's broken out of the yeshiva world. So he builds on that and takes on Western. He's very European. He was so European and so cosmopolitan. That was one of his charms here. Here he's in the United States, and he always had that kind of beautiful European accent. He spoke in French. He spoke lots of languages. He looked dapper. He had his wispy hair. You know, he looked very French. One of the people in your book said that he, um, going back to his Judaism thing in a second, but what you just had reminded me that somebody said that like his characters that were European were more rich than his American fictional characters. I think it was in a context where he also kind of 
It was presented as though maybe he had like mixed feelings about American Jews or something, or maybe he just, he was European and he always saw himself that way, or he was somehow, it made me wonder if he had ambivalence about sort of the way Americans understood Judaism or practiced it or whatever. Well, first of all, I think he loved living in New York and he was the ultimate New Yorker in many, many ways. But, you know, where we grow up forms us. Mm-hmm. And you grow up in Seged in a small town in Romania that then becomes Hungary, and then you move to Paris, or you move to a small town in France, and then you move to Paris. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are your formative years. I don't think he looked down upon American Jews at all. I think he made a choice to live here. Could have lived in Europe. He could have lived in Israel. There are many, many people who are always going, well, American Jews don't know enough about the Talmud. They don't know about the Torah. I actually look at it very differently. I think, wow, here we are so many millennia after Judaism was created. I look at how much people do know. Right. And people, there are, there are so many books about Jewish culture and Judaism and Jewish life and Jewish history and Jewish arts. And I'm sh- I'm just amazed by how much, it's how these books place. get. Yes, right. it's so fertile. And I, I look at it completely differently. I just don't look at it like this barren landscape of right. Judaism out there. <laughs> now, will all the same institutions survive from generation to generation? That's a different question. And that's not even one about religion per se. It's about how institutions, they are valuable for a while. And sometimes then they disappear and then new ones come in, up in their places. And I think we've seen that. So to just identify, you know, Judaism in a very narrow way, I don't think he, he did that, that but he very much in his classes from, and again, I never took one of his classes, was very interested in teaching about like Jewish thinking, mm. Hasidic. Like he had one of my favorite books where he talks about all these, and I'm blanking on the name of it at the moment, but all the Hasidic stories and they're beautiful. They're wonderful. Remember, he's a story, Ellie's a storyteller and he goes back and he finds wisdom in these old stories and he does find a lot of wisdom within Judaism that he then shares with his students. My understanding is that's a common thing for survivors where they moved away from Judaism and some of them didn't, you know, had to reconcile with where was God, where, where's my place as a Jew. And it seems like he didn't stay in the orthodoxy of which he was raised, but he was very, very involved in still studying Judaism and practicing it in, in whatever, in a, in a different way, not in an orthodox way, right? Well, first of all, orthodoxy has never owned Judaism. But I mean, of his childhood. And I, and I would just remember, I mean, the, the course, you, you do the basics refreshing on who Elie Wiesel really was. And the excerpt from Night, I think you have this in the book, is that, you know, never again shall I forget those moments which murdered my God mm-hmm. and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself never. It's as if there was a snuffing out, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. such that's a That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Remember, the essence of Judaism to me is wrestling with God. It's not necessarily always having faith in God. Right. And I think that's at the essence of other Christian Judaic religions as well. And I think he was somebody who wrestled with God, but he made a decision that he, in memory and honor of his parents and his mm-hmm. sister— his younger sister who was killed in the Holocaust and his mother and his father, the continuity of Jewish thought and life and observance was something that was really important to him. 
he attended an Orthodox synagogue. He also remembered that's what he felt comfortable in. That's what he knew the music of. That's what he knew the the kinds of liturgy mm. of. He always remained, like when I went to his funeral, it was at a Fifth Avenue synagogue in New York. It's an Orthodox synagogue. I was going to tell you the story about his son. I interviewed Alicia and talked to Alicia a few times. There's an interview in the book, two couple interviews that are combined together. And he talks about how Alicia's a real rebel when he's growing up. And he has comes home from college and he has a blue mohawk and he's dyed his hair. And his father's like, you can do anything you want. I love you. Do whatever you want. I only ask some, this from you. Please marry a Jewish woman. And so he does marry a Jewish woman who's a lovely woman. But this was something that Ellie was so concerned about Jewish continuity and Jewish just remembering our elders and remembering his elders. That was a lot of his motivation as far as I as I can see. This isn't a theology podcast, so we're not <laughs> supposed to do too much of this, but I remember a talk one time about Jacob and the idea that it's so very important that you were able to pin the angel, not just that you would wrestle with God, but that you could win if you wanted for a time. The idea was that our doubt is okay and is part of the story. Mm. And oftentimes it wins for a season and then faith comes back. Mm. But that's okay to give voice to the distance. I think it's okay to even decide that you don't believe. But religion and Judaism for definitely is a community. It's a communal religion. If you want to belong to the community, you many, many Jews, especially in Sephardic tradition, whether or not they believe in God was completely irrelevant to whether they were part of the community. Whether they went to synagogue, it was a social, it was a political, it was everything. Um, so being part of the Jewish community or part of a religious community is not dependent on on faith and belief. What are the kind of things when you've been going around talking about him, what what do you hear a lot from people, like, or especially young people? The, what are the people interested in about him? Well, actually, I was going to say that every time I go and I talk about him, and I've talked about him from London to L.A., at this point, people come up to me and tell me new stories. Mm. And they're, I feel like I could do another. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh, I should have had that in the book. <gasps> I didn't know that you existed. I'm so <laughs> sorry. I mean, like, I met a— Second edition. <laughs> yes, a 90s, you know, a man in his 90s who was his bunkmate in Auschwitz. And then— and he really was his bunkmate in Auschwitz. Wow. I mean, I also meet people who make up stories. But I also, there were a lot of them that are real. I actually met someone who was so fascinating. I was giving a talk, and then he raised his hand, and he had been with Ellie the day Yitzchak Rabin had died. And he was there to do an interview with him because he was writing about whatever book Ellie had been doing at that moment. I think it was a memoir. Instead, he sat next to him as Ellie took phone calls and spoke in Yiddish and Hebrew and English and French other languages that he knew about to people who were presidents and prime ministers and who knows and from all different points of view and he sat there and watched Ellie handle all this and he was just blown away because it showed how he could be so civil and he could talk to so many different kinds of people. So in terms of students and young people I think that night is really the way that people connect with Ellie because that's how they know Ellie and again, not all students read Night, but there was a, a lovely story. So my dad, who is 98, has a Haitian caregiver, and her nieces were over visiting. They go to public school in some little town in New Jersey, and their parents are Haitian. They were born in Haiti. I was on my way to see Ellie. I think it was right before Ellie died. And I told my dad, I'm going to see Ellie now. And they heard, and they said, you mean Ellie was Zhao? We just finished reading Night. 
you know him? And I was like, yes, yes, I do know him. They said, well, will you say hello for us? So I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we write a note to him right now? We couldn't find any paper in the house, so we found some little index cards, and then they wrote a note on index card for Ellie. And that happens to be when I was going to see him the last time, and I didn't get to see him, and I still carrying around that. I still have that little index card, because had he gotten that index card, he would have written them back. You look really moved by the story you're telling. Yeah. Is that because you're because the people that you knew or just Well, because I, I think that it's an example of there are twins. These two they were maybe at the time ten or eleven. I don't know, maybe they were twelve, because they had already read, written they were they were in junior high. They had Red Night. They were immigrants from Haiti, from a family that probably hadn't read night, but they had read night in public school. They were so touched by his story and it meant so much and they had lived the Holocaust through Ellie's eyes and then they discovered that he was a real person and that they could write a note to him. I knew that he would write them back, but of course he couldn't because he was already so sick. But he was the kind of person who would have written a note back to them. So for me, that was just very, very sweet. And it tells you something about the importance of night to young people because he's a young teenager when he's writing this book It is the voice of a young teenager that they can understand. So when I was young, I read Anne Frank, the diary of Anne Frank, and that was also very powerful. But it didn't bring you quite into the camps. It was a different kind of story. And and they're both incredibly important. But I feel like this story does bring you into the camps. And it will bring you into the camps 20 years from now and 50 years from now and 100 years from now and... Also, maybe today when we we don't have quite the view toward religious leaders that we used to, just to have somebody who was, and obviously there are people like that who are still living, civil rights leaders and others, but not many people who are moral, spiritual, ethical leaders, cultural figures the way he was. So that's 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 a loss. He was a moral leader and also, I think, as you point out, a cultural leader. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was a spiritual leader. Most people aren't a moral leader and a cultural leader. I think one reason I, I often felt awkward is because he had such natural moral gravitas having lived through such in, such incredible evil. And I felt like, wow, I think I've had some hard times in life. We all think we've had some hard times in lives. Sometimes we've created those hard times for ourselves, but I have never experienced the kind of evil that he have, has and then had the fortitude to survive it and then make something go beyond it, transcend it, and take that message beyond who I am and not fall into the abyss. So I, I was in awe of that because that's something that many, many Holocaust survivors did. I think when a person reads Night, it's so severe and uh, extreme and incomprehensible that you think it cannot happen again. And yet I know in your description in the book, you talk about the concern that yet anti-Semitism does seem to be on the rise. Is there, as we begin to wind down, do you have thoughts about that piece of things and why this book is timely right now? I was thinking a lot about this recently. I actually went back and looked at the headlines from July 2nd, 2016, when the day he died, and I was looking at what was the headline where something about Trump and Hillary's emails, and then there was Brexit had already been beginning, actually. There was 
Europe was in the like midst of this throes of this refugee crisis. But comparatively, it seemed like an innocent time because it was shortly afterwards where we began to see this rise in anti-Semitism in the United States, which I had never experienced in my entire life, and I think most of us had it. And I first thought, oh my gosh, well, it's lovely. Maybe it's good that he missed all this. And then I thought, well, actually, it would have been so wonderful to have Ellie with us now because he had that moral authority. He had actually already spoken up about Bidberg to Ronald Reagan. He was somebody who could command the respect of leaders from all different points of view, as I've said. I think he would have commanded respect from our president. And I think he could have possibly been a positive influence about how language is used. It's really an important conversation for our time, how we phrase things. And I think he would have been, again, I just, I feel like he could have helped for many, many reasons. Of course, you know, I actually had this conversation with someone yesterday and they were like, well, really, do you think that the president might have changed how he spoke? And I said, well, I actually would think that President Trump has respect for Ellie Wiesel and that he might have and that there really is nobody just quite like Ellie that's out there right now who could mm-hmm. have gone to the White House and had a private conversation and a very civil conversation and tried to teach him. And I... I have to hold on to that little idea in my mind. I do think that, again, coming back to how Ellie did it, I think that what we can take away from that, what we can learn from that is speaking civilly and graciously. And even though we may not have the same kind of moral gravitas and moral authority that Ellie had, we can do our best. As I mentioned, I spoke to Martha, his longtime assistant, who you interviewed in the book. And one of the things that she said was that people would come to him, students and others, and say, basically, what do I do? Like when you're talking about this is a time when people feel... And he basically said, I don't know if I'm saying it as articulate as she did, but just do something. Like do something for other people, you know, that it that it doesn't have to be exactly that you know what to do. That just get out there and help other people, serve other people, do something in the cause of justice. And that he saw all the different causes he spoke for. He spoke, he knew that his first, I don't know if you'd say allegiance, but he he cared for the Jewish people. And what he said was that the purpose of the Jew is not to make the world more Jewish, but more human. And so I guess he'd be saying, well, how do we do that in the, in our circumstance? I mean, if he did it in his circumstance and Nelson Mandela and so many other people, it would have been interesting to hear it in his voice. And that's what we're missing. In the book, I tried, we actually interviewed a young Palestinian American woman who had written an essay for his essay contest and I won it. And she talks about how Ellie inspired her to become a Palestinian activist. And she is in a very thoughtful, informed way from what I can read about her. Also talked to Sonari Glinton, who was at NPR for a long time. Here's a young African-American boy who's a son of a single mom going to school on the south side of Chicago. He is not particularly interested in the school. He is assigned to do a book report and he picks the slimmest volume because he's just, he could care less. And it happens to be night. And he reads night and it changes his life and he goes and he studies with Ellie. He goes to Boston University because Ellie's there and he studies with Ellie. And what he takes out of all that is that he has to learn to speak 
for himself as an African-American. It was really a struggle for him at the time. This was already a few decades ago to be a, a, one of few African-Americans at Boston University. And Ellie spoke to him and told him, be who you are. And 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 encouraged him. And what Sonari took away is that Sonari had to be a journalist because he had to speak up to, that's what his takeaway was. So he could speak up to power. So I think everyone had their own takeaway. Many students and young people had their own takeaway from Ellie. And just as I did, because he was like, find your own voice. Write a book. Go for it. Don't worry about editing it. Let's just do it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was, wow, this amazing person is telling me this. I'm going to do it. <laughs> it wasn't this book, by the way. I don't know what he would have thought about this book. <laughs> Well, this book is beautifully edited and written. We'll be sure to link to Ali Wiesel, An Extraordinary Life and Legacy, which Nadine has just published. And thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Nadine. Uh, You leave us a lot to chew on, and we'll uh, keep working on it. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tell a friend. And let us know who else you'd like to see featured at Faith Angle, which has been convening mainstream journalists with religion scholars and clerics for more than 20 years.